Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to the Four-Eyed Radio Network. You're about to listen to another proud presentation brought to you by Revenge Lover Designs. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off of your order. Wallop and web snappers. My spider sense is tingling. Tingling. Anybody else's spider sense tingling? Welcome to Walloping Web Snappers, a Spider-Man podcast where we dive into every Spider-Man cartoon ever made. I'm Doug. And I'm Derek. And is your spider sense tingling? Walloping web snappers, my spider sense is tingling. To listen to the show, find us on 4iradio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Revenge Lover Designs, illustration and design that fit your personality. For samples and inquiries, visit revengelover.com. And before we dive into this episode, a quick bit of business, some word snappers business. Uh, We had some words in last week's episode, and those words, I hope, I hope you clocked them. Uh, because I just straight up lied in order to include them. (laughs) Were uh, (laughs) Carnage Can't Consumed Creamed Corn uh, by Bo Harper, which brilliant, brilliant combination of words. Um, Had no idea how to incorporate them. So like I said, I just straight up lied. (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea where you were going with that when you did it. And then you pulled it off and I was like, all right, I don't think I even faked it very well. Like I should have been more surprised by something that absurd. And I was just like, oh, weird. That's interesting. I felt bad too because I was like bringing up something that would have been genuinely really interesting. Uh, but yeah. this did, just didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> and then pulled out some creamed corn on you. <laughs> Goodness gracious. So, very good stuff, Bo. Uh, very, very good stuff. <laughs> if you would like to submit Word Snappers words uh, or or play our Word Snappers game, you can uh, find that on Patreon at patreon.com slash snappers. Any patron at any tier can submit words, uh, and we have, to, we have to work them in somehow. So <laughs> that's how that works. Even when we got a lie. <laughs> yeah, even if I got a lie. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not the only announcement that we have or the only news we have. Um, we have some bigger stuff here. This is episode number 100. And what that means is it's our 100th episode where we're talking about shows for the very first time or episodes for the very first time, um, which is kind of incredible. It's kind of wild to think that we've gotten into the triple digits. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, it's just kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> it is. I mean, technically, like, we've covered, we've done more than 100 episodes if you count, like, every bit of, like, podcast content that we've made, technically. Yes. But it's, like, the officially numbered episodes, the 100th episode. We've even cut, co- what's mind-blowing to me is that, considering that, like, some of these numbers epi- numbered episodes have consisted of, like, multiple episodes at a time and, like, movies, like, we've covered well over 100 episodes of television within our 100 episodes of podca- of this podcast, which is right. wild to me because it still doesn't feel like we've been doing this for that long. Right. Yeah, we've, but... we've produced more than 100 episodes of podcasting, and we've covered over 100 episodes of television. This is just the 100th time we are talking about a Spider-Man episode for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, weird. It's so weird. I love it, but it's weird. Yeah. It's weird to think about. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. past year especially really launched us uh, much closer to this 
than uh, than I think we thought we would when we started. Obviously, doing every other week. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad we got here now, though, because it feels right to be doing what we're doing. <laughs> I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because what we're doing for episode number 100 is starting a new series uh, and not just any series. We are uh, doing the first ever Spider-Man cartoon, the first episode of the very first Spider-Man cartoon for episode number 100. Celebrating 100 by going back to the beginning. Yeah, which is perfect because yeah. obviously our goal is to cover all Spider-Man cartoons. So why not go back to the beginning? Yeah. One of the things that, that I'm excited about that we're planning for this show, kind of as a, as a celebration, I guess, for hitting 100 episodes and also just because this show is the perfect one for it because it's so strange but also, like, beloved in its own way. Um, our plan is to have a guest f- for as many of these episodes of this of this show as possible. Obviously not for this episode because there's a lot of – lot of, we got a lot of other cool stuff happening in this episode. But uh, for every episode of the 60s show going forward – um, we're going to try to get a guest and I think that'll be really fun because we've got some people in mind. We haven't recorded any of those yet, but I'm anticipating that we'll have some really cool people on, um, to yeah. talk about this, this great show. Yes. We are planning on having very cool people on rest assured, cool people only. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, we're going to get some real boring, boring people. <laughs> no, nobody's going to be cool. It's going to be like the most drawl nerds you've ever met in your life. Oh yeah. Obviously. Yeah, <laughs> the antithesis of of what we're or, or or rather the opposite of the spirit of why we're bringing people on. No, this is like the perfect show because it's it's uh, it's early, it's wacky, um, it takes a completely different format than most other Spider-Man shows. Um, yeah. all other Spider-Man shows except for maybe individual episodes of certain shows, and it just seemed the right time to sort of do something different for us. Um, and I'm excited to see, uh, and I'm excited for all of you to hear. Uh, who all is ending up on our schedule. The other thing that we're doing, just sort of uh, in conjunction with episode 100, uh, though it isn't necessarily specific to episode 100, is that we're opening up our Discord. And we say it that way because Derek and I made a Walloping Web Snappers Discord a long time ago and have sort of been like, what do we do with this? And then we were like, you know what? Just open it up. Just invite people to it. See what happens. Um, and so we will have the Walloping Web Snappers Discord open, um, and we will make sure to put a link to that Discord in our show notes. And you can keep your eyes peeled. Um, surely we'll post that that invite and that link uh, elsewhere. But if you like talking about Spider-Man, if you're looking for other people to talk Spider-Man with, or if you want people to talk uh, about these episodes that we're covering while we're covering them, if you're somebody who watches along and have your own thoughts, or if you wanted to get a hold of us in a conversational way that isn't necessarily um, on Twitter, uh, especially if you're not necessarily a Twitter user um, or other social media user, that might be the perfect place for you. Um, there are some other channels that are on there for like comics and movies and stuff like that. Um, so it's not exclusive to cartoons, but when you get in there, you'll see that it is largely organized by specific series. So you can kind of dive in wherever you want. If Ultimate Spider-Man is your thing, you can stick to that channel. If you watch all of them, you can be all over the place, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I anticipate it'll be like a slow ramping up thing because it's a brand new Discord. So if you're kind of on the fence about it and it's just like, I don't know, that's it's don't be intimidated because I'm sure there's going to be barely anybody in there at first. So yeah. please jump in if you're just curious. The the more people that, that just kind of jump in and just start chatting, the better and the, the more lively of a community it's going to be. And I I would hope that we attract the kind of people that would be fun to meet and talk to and get to know and, and have a community yeah. around. Yeah, absolutely. 
For sure. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. And uh, like Derek said, just jump right in when you see it. But right now, like we said, we're covering Spider-Man 67. And with that comes a whole lot of really cool, fun, interesting, I hope, information. I think this (laughs) stuff is interesting. Doug, you can appropriately react and be like, I don't care about anything that you just said. That's fine. I'll understand. (laughs) Most of this stuff is all interesting to me. There's obviously, this is an old show, so there's like a lot of stuff that's out there about it. But at the same time, there like also isn't. Like there's there's plenty of like information because it's so old right so there's plenty of plenty of history behind like what the where the animation world was where the comics world was all that stuff but they're also like it's not like they were doing you know breakdowns and interviews in 1967 with like comic uh cartoon creators right Mm -hmm. um and most of the people that worked on this show are dead now so like it there's not a lot of like in-depth like interviews with creators or choices that they made out there. So it's not going to be as many like fun quotes from creators and reasons behind some of the weird choices that are made on the show as we try to get just because those legitimately really don't exist. But there is still uh, really fun stuff that I think is still fun because of the time period that it was made because this is the earliest piece of media that we've covered on our podcast the whole landscape of media was so completely different mm-hmm. in 1967 um that i think just some of some of the stuff about this will 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 just be fascinating just because of how different it is from now and i will say i'm just going to plug right off the top that a lot of the information that i pulled comes from a book that i bought i th- i think it's a self-published book only on amazon but if you can find it other elsewhere outside of amazon cool too you should get it from there but i know that it's at least available on amazon it's got a long title it's called it's called spider-man on tv exclamation point a full color episode guide to the grand trey lawrence animation series book one the 1967 cartoon um (laughs) which is uh it's it's not an officially licensed book uh from what i can tell it's just a it's like a fan-made book um i think it's just one guy who put it all together but it's it's just specifically about the first season of this show the, the season that was done by by Grand Trey Lawrence Studios, I'll get into to why that matters. But it's just about that. Like I said, there's not like a lot. Of, there's not like interviews and stuff in it um, because those just don't exist. But what's really cool about the book is that the author was able to get a lot of access to old materials from the studio. So there's tons of photos and scans of like storyboards and original scripts and like character profiles and like sheet music and stuff. Really cool kind of like archived stuff from from this show that I don't know that you could find anywhere else. Like I think that this was a special access that the author is able to get to this stuff. So from that comes some pretty exclusive information that I, I, I found really interesting. And I've kind of compiled that alongside the just general history because just the way that some of the stuff, some of the characters in Spider-Man was written about at the time, I think is really interesting. Totally. Where our story begins, well, I guess our story begins when Spider-Man was created in the comics, but where our, where our story begins for this particular show is in 1966 with a Grand Trey Lawrence Animation and their distributor, Krantz Films, when they put together their first animated production based on Marvel Comics characters, which was the Marvel Superheroes, a, a syndicated show. I don't know if you've ever seen anything from this show, Doug. I've seen a few uh, like episodes of it just kind of randomly on places. It's like this 
in it has an infamously low budget. It's extremely cheaply made. It's basically the earliest iteration of motion comics. It's just like Xerox panels from the original comic stories. So you'll have like Captain America, like as drawn by Jack Kirby, and they just add a little bit of like motion to it and voiceover and then aired it on TV. It's basically just the comics. They're really interesting to watch. I actually think they're kind of a cool little archived thing that exists because there's not much out there like it. But it's cool because that was Marvel's kind of first foot in the door for television. Yeah, I haven't actually watched any of the episodes, but I'm obviously very aware of it just through this show. <laughs> yeah. Which will become yeah. much clearer uh, when I talk about who's in the show. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So they were like successful enough so that in July 1967, Stanley announced the upcoming shows that were going to be coming out that fall in that month's comics. So that included some Amazing Spider-Man number 50, which we actually read pretty recently for our for our uh, Patreon. Yep. Funny enough, I uh, I was like, you know what? This is perfect because I'm going to pull up my little calendar of spider-man comics because i've been keeping like a little calendar as i read through the early stuff just to like mark when characters showed up and stuff like that so i was like oh you know what i'll check and see where they were when they were making this show and then i was like oh that's funny it's exactly what we just talked about <laughs> yeah yeah so check out that episode in spider-man no more on our patreon because we talk about that issue that the show was announced in yep. synergy, synergy is great <laughs> But yeah, so in, in, in Stan's Marvel bullpen bulletins page, there's an announcement, which I, I, it, this doesn't like matter for the history or whatever, but I want to read it because it is the most Stan Lee thing that I've ever read in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do an impression, so just imagine him saying it. Even though all the details aren't in yet, this one is too hot to keep under wraps any longer. It's what you've all been demanding. A full half-hour TV show for each of Marvel's top two mags. The fabulous Fantastic Four and the amazing Spider-Man. And dig this. Both shows will be phantasmagorically presented over the ABC network in full animation and colossal color. Who says this isn't the Marvel Age of World Takeover? (laughs) Fun that it was on ABC. (laughs) Right? Given the future. (laughs) Yeah, ABC, the thing, which wasn't owned by Disney at the time, but will be soon. (laughs) Phantasmagorically presented. (laughs) Good one, Stan. So with that, only four years after Spidey debuted in comics, which is wild to think about, that he only existed for four years before he yep. got this, this first cartoon. Four years after he debuted, the first animated Spider-Man series ever debuted on September 9th, 1967 at 10 a.m. on ABC, following the debut of the kind of less popular Fantastic Four cartoon that was created by Hanna-Barbera. I don't even remember if I've even seen that one. That is that the one with Herbie the Robot in it instead of... Instead of the Human Torch, I don't remember. I 100% have never seen that show. It might be the Herbie the Robot one, but I don't remember if that's the same one or not. doesn't matter. I don't think anybody cares about that show. Interestingly, Stan Lee and artist uh, John Romina Sr., who were working on the comic at the time, were creative consultants on the show. What's kind of fun is that that Spider-Man on TV book that I was talking about has a scan of this like personally typed out sheet of character profiles by Stan Lee, like that he typed out himself from like early 1966 that he gave to the show's producers. It's all pretty basic stuff, but I pulled out some tidbits that I thought were just really fun. Some are just like interesting for context of the show because they're questions that we might ask while watching it. Some of them are just like Stan being Stan Lee. 
So first of all, he does explicitly say that Peter Parker is intended to be a freshman in college. So that's what we're supposed to be expecting in this show. I think that that coincides perfectly with where he was in the comics. He was a freshman at the time. So exactly. So it makes sense. I think it I think he's in high school in a later season, though. Like, I think that changes. But at least when we're watching it now. (laughs) But I can see why they would would want him to be at this point. Like, I could see why Stan would want that. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. What's cool, too, is that because we, we've, this has been brought up before, and this is something that, that the show um, at least kind of mildly does to a certain extent. Um, one of Stan's notes is that uh, his voice as Spider-Man should have a muffled quality. He talks through a mask, which covers his mouth, and perhaps his voice should be an octave lower as Spider-Man. <laughs> I'm glad that note exists. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I, it, it, that's one of those things where it's sort of like, oh, yeah, this is literally the first time people would have been ever considering what Spider-Man's voice would sound like. And so it's interesting that he's thinking through those particular details, which one of those things is definitely present in this show. But like neither of those things really pervade through any other Spider-Man iteration, you know, like the movies kind of incidentally have the muffled quality thing. But like those two details, like no other cartoon really, for the most part, doesn't just avoids that. Yeah, they they might allude to it, but they don't necessarily go out of their way. I'm interested to hear which one you think is definitely present, because I think there's sometimes maybe one of them is present sometimes. Yeah. I, I don't think any of it is consistent and I'm not oh, even sure much of it was intentional. <laughs> it's a little, little bit of both. I think the latter was intentional. The former, I think was just sound quality at the time. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sure. Yep. And the latter is the one that I think is, is uh, I'm glad this note exists because it means someone was thinking about it. Uh, if you yeah. just watch the show, especially just this episode, uh doesn't sound intentional. <laughs> it sounds, sounds inconsistent. Yeah. I also like that in these character profiles, Stan specifically defines that the proportionate strength of a spider is approximately a dozen times as strong as the average healthy male. So that is what the proportionate strength of a spider is, folks. We heard it straight from Stan Lee. All right. <laughs> His note for Aunt May is pretty darn old. Late 60s, although looks like 90. What the fuck, Stan? Late 60s? Are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, I guess in 1967, people like people don't age in the same way now as like they did at the time. But still, that is such a disservice to like anyone who's ever been in their late 60s. Well, it's it's strange. It's I feel like he must say late 60s specifically based on number because he's clarifying that she looks 20 years older than that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, somebody must be like, she can't be 90, Stan. And he's like, well, then fine. She'll look 90. Like, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> that sounds that sounds right, actually. <laughs> and, of course, the key Aunt May characteristic is that she babies Peter, wants Tim to wear a sweater if there's a breeze, etc. I just love the etc. there. <laughs> yeah. Also funny he'd have to note that, given that that's, like, very clear in the uh, – like, that's not, like, a performance thing. That's just, like – a characteristic of May Parker. That's a line that she says repeatedly all the time. He also notes that J. Jonah Jameson is a tough, skin-flinty Edward Arnold. I don't get the reference, and I didn't look it up, so yep. don't know what that means. I just thought it sounded weird. And also an updated Scrooge. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, he also clarifies that Betty is in her late teens and a typical young working girl tinged with sadness, yep. not a cheerful girl. Oh, I'll Betty. be curious to see how that 
plays in the show. I, I only watched this first episode that we're talking about, mm-hmm. and we do get Betty in this, but I'll be curious to see like how Betty she gets based on what Betty has done to this point in the four years yeah. of the comics, which is definitely more than tinged with sadness, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it's like she, she cries and the runs melodrama away. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i love her <laughs> yeah i i do think that like all despite all these things that stan said i don't think the producers necessarily listened all the time i mean they don't have to i guess right. even though they're creative consultants so they did streamline peter parker's life for the sake of simplicity so like I think for the most part, at least in this first season, for sure, there's like not really much of any of his school life. I think there maybe is later on in the series. But for the first season, it's just about him working at the Daily Bugle. Even though Stan like presented them Aunt May as a major character, she only appears in one episode in the entire first season instead of being a regular character. So they definitely narrowed the focus of this regardless of, you know, what uh, what the creators wanted. I'm not surprised given the way the show is structured. Well, yeah, I think, you know, if they were going to do a two segment series, which again changes after the first season, like I think everything after the first season, aside from a couple of bits, becomes just full 22 minute episodes. But, you know, for the first season, everything's like an 11 minute short. How much of how much soap opera from Peter's high school life can you possibly fit into that? You know, right. And of course, we'd be remiss without mentioning the iconic theme song, right? The one that everybody everybody knows that has been covered by like every band in existence and has appeared in like every movie in, in one way or another. The lyrics were written by three-time Academy Award winner and 16-time Academy Award nominee. I can't even fathom that. Uh, Paul Francis Webster. Everything that he's ever been nominated for is like for best original song in some film, basically. Sure. So. They got a hot shot for it. I guess it shows because he came to write the lyrics and the lyrics are unforgettable. So, hey, get your three-time Academy Award winners in and they'll write you a good song. Do you know where those nominations and awards fall in relation to the composition of this piece? I think most of them were before. Oh, really? Like, oh, wow. Okay. I believe I believe so. Like, I think it was in the 50s that he won, some, won his award. Gotcha. He won his major awards, yeah. It makes a big difference, so. right? Because, like, if they had all come after, then it'd be like, oh, okay. Like, they didn't know who he was yet or whatever. But, like, mm-hmm. no, they were specifically acquiring a 16-time uh, yeah. nominee. Yeah. Like, of the ones they did, I think the one that I most recognize when I love is a many, a many Splendid Thing is, like, a song that he is, – is the song that he wrote and what that he won an award for. Like he's, he wrote definitely some some major major original songs for films yeah. and yeah I think it was intentional that they wanted to get somebody who they were confident could do it sure. to uh, to write the lyrics and the music was composed by Bob Harris. Fun fact: uh, the book Spider Man on TV has an original scan of the handwritten sheet music, which is really cool, showing that the "Like a Streak of Light" lyric was originally "Like a Bird in Flight." That was actually nixed by Stan Lee at the last minute and replaced by like a streak of light, which I would agree is a better line. Yeah, good note. Yeah. There's no point note. in comparing Spider-Man to a bird. Yeah, but th- that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> Especially since like the Superman thing is like, it's a bird, yeah. it's a plane. Although Spider-Woman does like pretty much rip that off. <laughs> this was 20 years earlier though, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, this is Spider-Man's first cartoon, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, and the additional, uh, additional composition work on that song was done by Stu Willips and Dee Capross, and it was performed by Canadian musical groups The Billy Van Singers and The Lori Bauer Singers in Toronto. 
all other music, all that jazzy background music that you're, that we're going to hear for a while was provided by conductor Ray Ellis, who would go on to compose nearly all of Filmation's music between 1968 and 1982. So nice gig. Yeah. Very sweet gig. <laughs> very hard at work for a long time. <laughs> and as you can very clearly tell by just watching like a minute of this show, um, just like what, what, what the nineties series had to deal with. This series was on a very tight budget from day one, particularly in, in the realm of animation. So there's tons of stock footage usage, like minimal character animation, very simple backgrounds. And it only continues to get worse because at the end of this first season, Grant Trey Lawrence ends up filing for bankruptcy and uh, is forced to close their studio. So their distributor, Krantz Films, took over production in 68 for the second season, handed responsibility for the show to this immensely influential animator, Ralph Bakshi, um, who's a name that you probably have heard of, even if you don't, even if you're not sure what he did. He's just, that, that dude's done a ton of stuff. We could do an entire podcast on him probably, um, but we can talk more about him when we get to episode, I don't know, 200 or 300, whenever we get to the, the second season of this show, because <laughs> there's a whole other story to tell for the second and third season of this show uh, when, when Bakshi is in charge, because that's when it becomes like full 22-minute episodes that are much weirder, more psychedelic, even less related to the comic material, under even tighter budget restraints. That's when it gets like, it goes from like being kind of like a weird oddity to like the fucking weirdest shit you've ever seen in your life. Like the thing that I think it becomes really known for. Yeah. Um, we got a ways where you get there, but just, you know, to, I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind with this season that like as weird as I'm sure this season will get, it's not going to be anywhere near as weird as it will get in the future. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, you know, uh, you know, since we're not there yet and we're just here at the beginning, like, I, I know that they were on a really tight budget and that they're going to end up reusing a bunch of what we just watched, but I I like what I see. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, yeah. I, was a, I was, and granted, this has a lot to do with expectations, but like, I was expecting a lot worse than what I actually watched in this very first episode. Yeah, there's some really fascinatingly fluid and detailed bits of animation yep. in, in this episode. Yeah, yeah fully I agree. agree. So this is one of those cases where it's not really easy to – it's not super easy to find this show legally right now. Um, it got big at, years ago because it was on Netflix, but right now it's like not on anything. I don't know what licensing stuff is going on because you think it would be a shoe win to put it on Disney+. Plus, but I'm sure they want it. I'm sure they want it. I don't know who owns the rights to it now because the DVD was created by Buena Vista Entertainment. So like at least at the time in 2004 – Disney owned the distribution rights, but I think it, it things have just changed hands multiple times since then. So who knows where it's at now? Um, but yeah, so you can't stream it anywhere. It is on the Internet Archive if you want to go there in good quality. You can stream <laughs> it there. Officially, it's not really available anywhere. The DVDs are super expensive. If you're lucky like me, you might be able to find like a used copy on eBay for like not super expensive. But for the most part, you're going to have to shell out a couple hundred dollars to get the DVD set. That came out in 2004 because it's out of print. And just as a note, going forward, we are going to be following the episode order of that DVD set. I believe that's just the airing order. Um, but I know that, you know, old shows like this, sometimes the uh, the airing order is weird. So DVD order just made the most sense. Yeah. Well, we can start talking about the epi- this first episode specifically because um, we do have some credits to get into. I think it was buried in all of those production notes a little bit. But I think we should clarify that, like... We're watching the first episode of the show, but this first season, I know you said this, 
but the first season is two segments. So yeah. it's two different stories told over one episode. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that because that could get confusing for people. Yeah. Yes. So we are technically talking about two episodes in this episode, but they're 11 minute episodes. So <laughs> yeah. If you watched cartoons in the nineties and the turn of the millennium on like Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network, like, or even, or even um, some stuff on Cartoon Network now, like it, you're you're familiar with this format. It's just not yeah. typical for superhero shows anymore. Right, right. So we're talking about this the, the first segment of this first episode right now. Spider Man sixty seven season one episode one a entitled "The Power of Doctor Octopus." Of course, we're starting with a Doctor Octopus episode for our one hundredth episode. The universe knew we were coming. Half a decade, oh got half a decade, half a century later. Love it to talk about this show. Yes. Doc Ock, we're here. Here for you, babe. Love it. Thank you for being here for our, to celebrate our 100th episode together. Oh, yes. IMDb is inconsistent about the synopses for this show, or if it does have them, they're going to be for like one segment out of the episode. So I'm just going to write them. I'm just going to write. I'm just going to write the synopses myself. And you know what? They're going to rule. So the synopsis per me is Dr. Octopus traps Spider-Man in a cave. I love that. That is some like... The Hulk quits the Avengers, period, end of synopsis, quality writing right there. Love it. Bravo. Uh, I can't you. wait for the rest of these synopses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, it's going to keep up like this, man. This is going to – I found my calling. All right. The original air date, I think I mentioned this, but this uh, this episode premiered on September 9th, 1967. Fun fact, the, the Spider-Man on TV book does mention that while this was the first segment that aired um, from the first episode that aired, this particular segment was apparently listed as show number eight in the original production schedule. I haven't looked far enough to see what their actual, like, scripted episode one was, but this is what ended up being the pilot. So – We've we've run into this multiple times with pretty much any show made before like 1994 that like uh, writer, director, animator credits are kind of spotty with like individual episodes. Usually these shows will just credit the entire staff and it's like the same title card for every episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same deal here. So I'm just going to just do generally just go through every major person who worked on the show creatively right now. And then we don't have to do any credits for any other future episode for, uh, of this show, you know, let's say hey, there you go. But I'm going to run through them. Cause a lot of these are really interesting. I do however know who wrote this particular segment because the Spider-Man on TV book actually has some scans from like the teleplay of this episode and has some fun notes on it and stuff. So I do know for sure that Bill Danch was the writer of this particular segment. And that's probably going to be the only time I know a writer of a specific segment from this show. (laughs) Danch wrote on the 1954 film, The Monster from the Ocean Floor. Probably is exactly what it sounds like. Sounds awesome. He also wrote a handful of Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, and Pink Panther cartoons, a bunch of Archie Comics and Sabrina the Teenage Witch cartoons uh, in the 60s or 70s, I guess, a bunch of other like Archie Comics specials and other episodes, and a handful of Fat Albert cartoons, and also wrote on the live-action Shazam series. Nice. Uh, yeah, and that is based on the Captain Marvel Shazam. He had a live action series in the seventies, oddly enough. <laughs> yeah. I can see I can see a lot of that DNA in this show so far. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So just kind of the overall credits uh, that are just going to be people who are working on this show in general. I think in this context, the producer probably did a lot of creative stuff and is probably a little closer to the showrunner for this show, from my understanding. So I'm going to credit him. The producer is Ray Patterson. 
he was either an animator or and or animation director on multiple things from 1954 all the way until 1993 on Basically every cartoon ever, ever from like <laughs> Hanna-Barbera to Tom and Jerry to like films like, I don't know, Dumbo and Bambi. Never <laughs> ever heard, heard of, of those. <laughs> Fun fact, not going to be the first time I'm going to credit a uh, major classic Disney film either. For example... The, there are three directors credited on this show. Uh, the first one is Grant Simmons, who has written on tons of shorts, along with Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi, and more. There's also Clyde Geronimi, who was the director of Disney's Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Lady and the Tramp, and a supervising director on Sleeping Beauty. So, you know, a nobody, basically. <laughs> And uh, Sid Marcus, who ended up being an animator directing on, like, every Marvel cartoon in the 60s all the way up through the 80s, which includes Spider-Woman, uh, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and Spider-Man 1981. Nice. So, pretty Makes wild. The, uh... <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, honestly, like, if you're making – I mean, if you're making an animated show for a, a large property – and I know it was only four years after Spider-Man, but it's still a Marvel production and Spider-Man was hot – you're going to get people who know what they're doing. It's just wild to have like, oh, yeah, you know, the director of one of the most influential animated films, if not films in general, ever, ever made in the history of film <laughs> working on your Spider-Man show. Cool. OK. Yup. Yup. <laughs> <laughs> also, again, the Disney crossover there is, in hindsight, uh, always, always fun. Yeah. It's, it's wild how much Disney blood Spider-Man has kind of had since the beginning. Radioactive Disney spider blood? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So this is an interesting one. You know, we don't normally like credit like the, the script supervisor or anything like that. But I just thought this was interesting because the uh, story supervision on this show, who's credited like right along the writers on the uh, the end credits title is June Patterson, which I just think it's cool that a woman was in a major role in a major series in a show in 1967. I mean, I think it's cool that she's credited specifically. Honestly. you know there were plenty of women around. Sure. And, like, we know, like, for a fact now in 2021, how many women were involved in making comics that just never got credit. So it's really yeah. spectacular that she's credited here. And it's not like she's just, like, working in an administrative role or something like that. Like, this is a creative role. She has had other creative credits. Like, she wrote on Pound Puppies. Oh, and guess what? She was in the animation department on Pinocchio. <laughs> so <laughs> everybody's, like, a big deal on this show. It's yeah. wild. And we've got a handful of writers that are also credited for every episode. I already mentioned Bill Danch for writing this episode, but other writers include Al Bertino, who wrote just tons and tons and tons of Disney shorts, Phil Babbitt, who mostly wrote on Heathcliff and an Archie show, Dick Robbins, who developed and I think show ran the 70s Godzilla cartoon, along with just, just a ton of action and superhero tunes from the 70s and 80s, just like pretty much all of them. And then there's also Dick Casarino, who apparently only ever wrote for this show interestingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> well it's funny because like you know you, you wouldn't expect somebody necessarily like that after hearing all those big names but if you think also about just like how small this sort of specific industry would have been like it, it's also not that surprising at the same time right like yeah i want to know who dick casarino knew <laughs> or rather yeah, who right? knew dick casarino <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, if 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 all of those big names uh, from Disney and just animation in general were costing a, a penny or two, I don't really know. 
it might not have cost as much for for some of the voice actors <laughs> to be quite honest not as big names uh definitely not quite in the same ballpark uh <laughs> as people who uh made bambi you know what i mean um, yeah. This show features accredited voice cast, accredited voice cast, important note there, of four folks who have series regular roles but do also provide voices for other characters. They're all pretty well connected credits wise, which is not really a surprise. The show also does bring in other folks for other characters who also will be interconnected with these folks. They just don't credit them, which isn't really a surprise. We run into this even with the shows that we cover from the 80s. We were like, hey, here are the voices. Uh, or rather, here are the actors who provide the voices. We never thought it would be that important to tell you who they are. Like, voicing, I guess. <laughs> this show right, very much right. like that. So we yeah. do know who some of them are. And and people have, people have credited or, like, retroactively gone back and credited a lot of those people who might even come in and just do one character. But it's not strange that we just have, like, four people on the voice cast and then they don't really talk about anybody else, you know? I think they're even on, like the last page of the credits, you know, or the last frame or, <laughs> or penultimate frame of the credits. Like the voice talent was not necessarily the feature here. <laughs> yeah. Another thing worth noting, individual characters might be voiced by multiple actors in different episodes across the series. So we're going to talk about Doc Ock in this episode. He's going to come up again and we're going to talk about him again in cast because he's voiced by multiple actors over the course <laughs> of the series. So that's just how they were doing things. So the core four cast members are Paul Souls. This is our Spider-Man. This is our voice of Peter Parker. And uh, sadly, we just recently lost Paul Souls. He just died in May of 2021. And I say sadly, but like he he lived a long life. Dude was like 90 years old um, mm-hmm. and was working... Uh, not constantly, but was working pretty much until then. Despite that, it doesn't have as many credits as you would expect because it's usually like one or two credits a year. Um, so he must have liked acting, but wasn't, you know, a super one of those people that just needs to constantly be working or anything. One of his most recent credits was as Joe, the titular 90 year old roommate in the Canadian web comedy, my 90 year old roommate. (laughs) It premiered in 2016 when he would have been in his late eighties. Interesting. Which is wild. Yeah. Don't mind me. I'm just in my late 80s and let's let's do a new show. <laughs> Damn. Damn. In addition to voicing Peter Parker and Spider-Man in this series, Souls would likely be recognized even to children today as the voice of Hermie in the 1964 Rankin Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer stop motion special, which still airs every holiday season. So if you've yeah. ever seen that, you've heard this guy's voice. And that special and that company rank and base, you're going to hear at least a few more times as I go through these folks. He was also part of the voice cast for the 1966 King Kong series. He voiced Ambrose Spike in the 2000 Redwall animated series, which I can't believe I've never watched. Have you ever seen any of it? No, I don't know anything about it. I want to watch it so bad. And he provided the voice of Bruce Banner in the 1966 Marvel superheroes series, which Derek uh, talked about as that first, you know, Marvel cartoon mm-hmm. as an homage to that role as Bruce Banner. He also appeared in 2008's the incredible Hulk as a pizza shop owner. <laughs> I had no idea. Didn't never knew that. Yep. That's fascinating. I had no idea either. Just learned that one. Huh. <laughs> and as mentioned, when we talked about the first episode of spider woman, Paul souls does reprise his role as Spider-Man in that series, which is a very cool thing. I love that they did that. I do um, too. Very, very cool stuff. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I like him. I imagine that the performance will get more consistent, but in this episode, in these two segments, it's so funny trying to like, or, or, or listening to them try to figure out how to distinguish, if at all, Peter Parker and Spider-Man, because sometimes Paul Souls will have like the superhero voice of like, all right, well, now I must go here. And then sometimes he'll have like this voice that isn't always used for Peter Parker, but I think maybe he was either directed to try or wanted to try out for Peter Parker. That's this like nasally whiny voice. And you're like, yeah. whoa, that is, that is that is a very different thing. Uh, but it's yeah. not totally consistent. So I'm very fascinated to see where or if he lands on a very clear distinction moving forward. Because uh, it was fun trying to like pin it down and find the pattern. <laughs> yeah, I get the sense that that's less on him and more on like the direction and, and, and then the animation or storyboarding or whatever. Like, Because I do think that there are points when it's like, oh, I can see that it's he probably is reading this still thinking that he's Peter Parker right now and not realizing that they've drawn him already in a Spider-Man costume. And so <laughs> like things like that, I think that that's probably more the case. Yeah, oh, I'm I sure. Think, I could very much see that. You know, I'm, the way this operated was very different. <laughs> yeah, all of his choices seem really, like, intentional. It's just, like, just not syncing up with what we're seeing on screen at this point, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't doubt it. I will say, hate that Peter Parker voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's, that's you know, that's what you get when you get, like, what, like, a 40-year-old to play, like, a 19-year-old? A <laughs> well, actually, you know what? I'm glad you said that because there's two Peter Parker. I will say this. This is a this is a show from 1967, right? Worth noting. Um, and so – and this is the very first Peter Parker voice ever, right? Mm-hmm. So – they're obvious like we have seen so many iterations it's easy for us to be like this is what peter parker should sound like even if it's just like our particular like flavor of peter parker yeah so definitely being way too hard on paul souls however many years later and again might not even have been his choice right they might have said like we want you to do it higher we want you to do it lower more whatever um but yeah (laughs) there are points as peter parker where he does just sound like a 40 year old and then there are points where he sounds like he's trying really hard to not sound like a 40 year old um and it's just it's so funny (laughs) it It cracks me up it's fully a product of just what this show is i'm not trying to shit on paul souls (laughs) yeah because i like his acting in a lot of other instances yeah i I feel like um, yeah there's no doubt he's 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 good at what he does Um, yeah it's just uh you know like I said, the whole process was different. Uh, and who knows, especially with the budget, who knows how long they even had these people for, you know? Right. How many takes are they even allowed to do? <laughs> so, That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. So I, Paul Souls is great. <laughs> I'm glad that they sort of land on something later that, that isn't a 40-year-old with a stuffy nose. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Next person on the cast, Bernard Cowan, a.k.a. Bunny Cowan. He's the narrator for the show. He also, like everybody else, will do some other voices for other characters. And he and Paul Souls are actually cousins. Just a fun little little tidbit there. The fact that he's the narrator for this show isn't surprising. It's really what he's known best for. In addition to narrating this show, he narrated or announced for um, a number of things like the Marvel superheroes, once again, uh, various series and specials produced by the Canadian comedy duo Wayne and Schuster, uh, which Paul Souls also appeared in plenty. 
He was the narrator for 1967's Max, the 2,000-year-old mouse series, again on which Paul Souls appeared, and Rocket Robin Hood, a futuristic sci-fi adaptation of the classic Robin Hood tales that aired that same year and was written by Bakshi. Yeah, that show is very important to this show because that's one that by the third season, maybe even the second season, but definitely by the third season, they use like the same cells from Rocket Robin Hood and just redraw over it. And that's when you get some just utterly bizarre cosmic psychedelic stories with that, where it's just like weird alien shit that they just insert Spider-Man into. Cause it was literally an episode of Rocket Robin Hood before. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like, what is it? Super Mario or like Mario, Super Mario Land 2 or whatever. That was like, literally an entire different game and they were like eh what if we make this Mario instead so like yeah. nothing about it screams Mario whatsoever <laughs> right it's just like a light reskin on something not even remotely yeah. related yeah. yeah it's great I love I, it that's what makes this show so weird and fun stuff like that for real I do want to watch Rocket Robin Hood though because I didn't really know it and then was like looking at you know stills from it and was like wow I need to watch this actually like nearly everything we talk about I feel like I need to watch uh, after watching the show and reading about these credits and these people. Yeah. Uh, There's just so much to watch. I think we have numerous commentaries in our future based solely on this particular Spider-Man series. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Paul Kligman, next uh, regular cast member. This is the voice of J. Jonah Jameson. Kligman voiced Donner and Comet in that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special. And he voiced a character named Cool S. Cat in (laughs) Rankin Bass's animated The New Adventures of Pinocchio. Which, because Rankin Bass is not Disney, that's an entirely separate thing. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But The New Adventures of Pinocchio. (laughs) What does the S stand for in Cool S Cat, I wonder? (laughs) Oh, I bet you it stands for nothing. I think it's just Cool S Cat, Scat, Cool Scat, Jazz. That's my guess. Oh, my God. (laughs) Shut up. That's my guess. Right? Don't you think? Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) what it is. Kligman was also part of the voice cast for Willie Bean and His Magic Machine, another animated Rankin-based production alongside Souls and Kligman. He is Kligman. Alongside Souls, and uh, he also, uh, no surprise here, uh, provided voices for the Marvel superheroes. And finally, last regular castmate, Peg Dixon. This is the voice of Betty Brant, as I'm sure you could have guessed. Uh, The only woman on the regular cast, she also... Uh, will provide voices for other female characters. I think she might be the voice of May at some point. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, she's the lady around. She's going to voice a lot of the lady characters. <laughs> yeah. She was course. the voice of Mrs. Claus and some other characters in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. She was also part of the Marvel superheroes voice cast. I believe that she voiced Wanda uh, among some other characters. She has far fewer credits, even in comparison to the guys, most of whom who have like, Maybe 50 to 90 credits, depending on how active they were. None of them super duper duper active. She was also married to Ed McNamara, who shockingly was part of the voice cast for this very show and most of the shows that I mentioned when I was talking about the guys. (laughs) So it really is just this like collective bunch of Canadian voice actors who just kind of worked at this period of time on (laughs) all the same shows pretty much on all the rank and base stuff 
And then you really don't hear that much from them outside of like little things here or there or like Canadian sitcoms or Canadian mo- like TV movies. Like it's <laughs> just so like a fun little group of folks. <laughs> yeah, that's so fun. Yeah. I really like Peg Dixon as as Betty in this. At least in this in the first segment. Yeah. Like I feel like she's really given she is given her all. Oh yeah. Like her screams and yells and stuff like mm-hmm intense like i just she's going all at it in that in that recording booth and like i mean she also i honestly i think out of all of them she has like the most natural performance like she actually sounds like she's like all of everybody's fine or either good to fine but i feel like she's like really 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 good well it's interesting because because this is a show in 1967 like what a natural performance and what acting is is like different measure kind of Mm -hmm. and i feel like she I would agree with you. She is sort of the most natural performance, but I think in context in that, like, I feel like she is acting the hardest, but not in a bad way. Yeah, I feel like yeah. the other folks, with maybe the exception of Cowan, who is the narrator, and, like, that's what he does. I feel mm-hmm. like Souls and Kligman are more almost casual at times, um, yeah. which I, I would distinguish from natural because, again, I think she is the most – natural role voice actor of the bunch for this period of time like yeah she like yeah no she shines she definitely shines she's she's really fun at least in this in this episode i doubt that'll change you know yeah i can't wait to hear her may if i'm right about that (laughs) yeah she's absolutely she was definitely my favorite of the uh, of the voice actors yeah of this episode i think yeah oh absolutely she yeah she was a big 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 highlight yeah. Um, and then there's another character uh, that we must mention here, uh, Doc Ock, perhaps. This episode specifically features one of the many actors who will voice Doc Ock in this series, and that actor is Vern Chapman. Uh, Vern Chapman was a regular on those Wayne and Schuster series and specials that I mentioned. He was also the voice of Nestor in 1991's The Adventures of Tintin. I don't know anything about Tintin, but I know that Tintin is very popular and I'm always surprised at how huge it is. So I figure somebody will be like, ah, yes, Nestor. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who that is. (laughs) (laughs) He also played a character named Mr. Deschenay, I'm guessing is how you say that, on a Canadian show called My Hometown, which starred Jay Baruchel. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was fun looking at these credits because it reminded me and this is the most stupid American thing I could possibly say, but it just reminded me of like how robust a television and film industry Canada has that we're just completely unaware of. And for their sake, probably should just never be aware of for the most part. Like I know some (laughs) stuff leaks over and we like appreciate it accordingly, like Schitt's Creek or Kim's convenience, but I'm glad that they just have like their own industry that we aren't a part of. (laughs) Yeah. Just don't let the Americans mess it up. I have a very similar feeling about like the Canadian film and television industry as I do like Eurovision. Like just don't let the Americans touch it. <laughs> yeah. And like Bollywood too. Exa- yes. It's just like, <laughs> yes. yeah. Keep us yeah. away. We don't deserve it. <laughs> yeah. We'll just fuck it up. We'll make it horrible right. somehow. <laughs> so yeah, a neat little collective of folks who probably like went out and got <laughs> dinner afterwards and hung out and... Who knows? Maybe they even watch the show together. They seem like friends. Sure. (laughs) Well, that is the hefty bit of production and cast. All we really have left, outside of maybe a little bit more production uh, when we get to the second segment, is to talk about the episodes. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And you might be listening and being like, oh my god, this is going to be like a seven-hour episode. Nope. 
we're doing things a little <laughs> differently now for this show. Yeah, yeah. So um, Derek already said this. Most of these 67 episodes won't be nearly this long, but as this is episode 100 celebrating the beginning of Spider-Man cartoons, obviously a lot of production. But here's the thing. Episodes moving forward probably won't be, well, definitely won't be as long as this one, but might not be even as long as a typical episode because the way that this this series is structured, at least in this first season, the fact that it's two 11-minute segments, it didn't really feel like it made sense to us, especially knowing we wanted to do guests as well, to do beat by beat. So I've written a brief summary of each segment. I'll read through that real quick, just in case you didn't watch it, because we do know we have some listeners who don't watch the shows. I love that about you out there who just like to hear us talk about things. So we'll still do a summary of it, and then we'll just take it wherever we want. If you listen to our Falling With Style uh, podcast, it's sort of like that, where we just kind of like talk about whatever we want. That's the approach we're going to take with 1967. Yeah, So this first segment, this Doc Ock segment, here's how it goes. This episode opens with Peter Parker pursuing an assignment from J. Jonah Jameson in the mountains. When a boulder rolls in front of his car, he careens off the road, and after changing into Spider-Man and using his webbing to save himself, because his car like literally falls off of a cliff, he stumbles onto a secret cavern at the base of the mountain. Inside, he finds a lab and is quickly captured by Dr. Octopus, who describes a plan to rule the universe by unleashing destructive shockwaves with power greater than an atom bomb across a portion of New York. Presumably as just a display of power, I would assume. Cool. Yeah, real, I mean, not a complicated plan here for Doc Ock in yeah. this episode. Seems a little, uh, <laughs> I, I think they say at some point much. deceptively simple. Ever the sweetheart, Doc Ock sends a warning letter to a skeptical Jonah in order to evacuate residents of the area. Doc Ock doesn't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> he I just mean, wants to blow uh, shit up. <laughs> he's, I think he's perfectly comfortable hurting people. He is comfortable but... hurting them, but he gives them he gives them a chance. So, <laughs> so he sends a letter to J. Jonah Jameson, which will come up uh, in just a moment. So Betty Brant, who's in the office as Jonah reads Doc Ock's letter, begins to worry about Peter. So she drives out to the mountain where Peter was driving around and finds his car abandoned. Uh, which is weird because it should be at the base of the mountain, no? And it's just like on the road. <laughs> I'm only just realizing this as I'm reading huh. the summary. I guess so. All right. Mm. Well, that's a detail. <laughs> yeah. When Doc Ock notices Betty Brant poking around, he opens the cavern. Uh, she, you know, pokes around inside the cavern, obviously, because that's weird. He drags her inside and imprisons her alongside Spidey. So Spider-Man, having already escaped once and having been recaptured by Doc Ock's tentacles. The first of three times. Right. (laughs) Escapes a second time. So naturally they fight again. The second time Doc Ock doesn't fight hand to hand. He uses all sorts of booby traps and equipment instead of, you know, actual combat um, and defeats Spider-Man again. So his attempts to escape are once again foiled. Like like Derek said, that'll happen three times. That was time number two. At the bugle with Peter and Betty both missing, Jameson contacts the police and receives a number of phone calls about various utility outages that confirm Doc Ock's threats. So he wasn't going to take it seriously, but then he gets all these reports that are like, whoa, wait a second. Doc Ock did do the thing he said he was going to do. So now he's actually concerned. Yeah. As Doc Ock begins to unleash the full brunt of his attack on New York, which does include blowing things up. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> Spider-Man yep. manages to free himself and Betty. So this is escape number three so that she can run and call for help and he can battle Doc Ock once more. The two do clash hand-to-hand this third time, but Doc Ock is defeated when Spider-Man webs up his eyes and ties him up to a column. Shortly after, Peter, back in civilian clothes, meets up with Betty, who relays the story to a police officer who, in turn, finds Doc Ock webbed up in the secret cavern, complete with a note from Spider-Man. The episode ends with Betty and Peter reporting back to the bugle and J. Jonah Jameson giving Peter grief over not getting any photos of the incident. And as I believe every segment will end, we get a joke. Peter says, I should have asked Doc Ock to lend me a hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you had one job, Peter. One no, job. I guess he was too busy trying to escape four <laughs> times, ultimately. Look, I can't. I, I know. It's unfair to like criticize the plotting of an 11 minute segment from a 1967 superhero show, but (laughs) (laughs) there's the they this was mm. (laughs) sure all of those things (laughs) get into it. What did what did you think of this first segment? This first 11 minute segment. It's fun. It's fine. It's just, it is funny that the entire episode of Spider-Man gets captured, tries to escape, gets captured, tries to escape, gets captured, tries to escape, gets captured, escapes. Like, that's, <laughs> then that's, that's the episode. Well, the funny thing to me about it is it's that, and it could have been that, except that each time he tries to escape, something changes, right? Like, and they yeah. sort of have that formula right there in front of them. They sort of write it in, but they just don't actually converge those two things. So you have like, first he's there by himself and he tries to escape and it doesn't work. Then he's there with Betty and tries to escape and it doesn't work. Then he's there after the police have been called, tries to escape and then it works. But, but neither Betty being there nor the police being called actually help. It's just literally yeah. third time's the charm. So it's like funny. Cause you're like, well, wait a second. What's different the third time other than you thought to shoot Doc Ock in the eyeballs. <laughs> oh, but on also he finally decides to use his webbing to create it, like to create a key by like shooting his webbing into the keyhole. And then the, and then that forms into a solidifies into a key, yeah. which you just didn't think of the first three times. Yeah, basically the way that I guess it's worse, like it's it's justified is like he just has new ideas, which is fine. It's just not like yeah. compelling. <laughs> yeah, like the, the thing is, like I don't mind that all the stuff is simple. Like it is a show and it's a cartoon in 1967. If you ever watch anything from this era, all the plots are incredibly simple. Like because they're they're working under limited time and you know limited time, limited animation, and they're trying. To 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 appeal to the youngest possible kids, like that's fine. I don't mind that Spider-Man's clever plans are just to web a joystick on <laughs> on Ox panel when he's not looking, and, and that opens the cage. Like I don't mind how simple that is, but I, I don't think it would have taken that m- just just slightly more ingenuity to at least make Spider-Man's like f- the way he finally escapes, like just a little bit more clever, so it actually feels like it was leading up to it. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I totally get you. I will say, like, it's. It's so strange to watch this episode, having watched everything we've watched, both with Spider-Man and outside of Spider-Man, because, like, I'm sure these things didn't even cross their minds, not because they're not good at what they do, but because it wasn't even probably the expectation, you know? Like, it literally was like, you get three strikes, but you didn't strike out. It's sort of like the structure of this, right? One strike, two strike, okay, he finally hits the ball and gets out, you know? So I think it yeah. that's probably all they were doing. And I will say, like, the individual pieces and parts I really, really enjoyed. Like, I I really liked 
you know, the way that I talked about really being pleased with a lot of the animation. I love the way that that Spider-Man specifically is animated frequently in this episode. It's silly. It's wacky. It's very not like a superhero, but it is kind of pleasant. Like when he does the sort of like Scooby-Doo run where he doesn't move, but like, like it actually looks really good. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of stuff like this show is never on model is, is something that I kind of really dig about it because it's so it's like every frame seems like it's, it's drawn by someone completely different. It very well, it probably is. That's probably Could exactly be, yeah. what's going on. But I think that that lends a really interesting like feel to it because it automatically like it feel it's it's a very cartoony right from the get go. And so you, I think as long as you're able to buy into that and just accept that like oh yeah every frame is sometimes just going to look like a completely different character. Mm-hmm. It makes it so there's sometimes just really interestingly fluid animation because they don't care and they don't have a like they they care but like they don't care to have them like following strict guidelines or whatever. Their and they priorities don't have, like, are I, different. They care yeah. but the priorities are not the same as a priority of you know 2017 spider-man right and like they don't have i think they they don't have the ability or the time and and you know money to do like squash and stretch to the same extent that other shows you know later on are able to do and have the funding to do because they just don't have as, as many frames to do what they need to do probably um so but they they mediate that by just like i said never having characters on model so if a character is just going to look squishy for like a, a like a you know multiple seconds that's fine because it's probably going to look better than if they were very static and just you know moving like a mannequin or something i think it might be fortunate that they couldn't do as much squash and stretch because they they might have wanted to and i think it wouldn't have i I don't know that i would have liked it as much like i I like that this show both feels like an old cartoon in the little bit of extra cartoonishness that it has being made in 1967 being made by these people um, Mm -hmm. who are really good at what they do but not for doing superhero things but also both because it's a superhero show and because they can't probably do as much squash and stretch still feels like a superhero show in which they typically wouldn't do very much squash and stretch you know yeah like Spectacular is largely the exception when it comes to Spider-Man shows or superhero shows and that it embraced that. Um, So it's funny because it kind of exists in both spaces and I think it works. I think it works really, really well. I like it. I think it it ends up adding a a specific flavor to this show that I don't think we will we will get until ultimate Spider-Man. And that still ends up being a product of its time because the type of cartoonishness that they're doing in ultimate Spider-Man, which by the way, we've never covered, (laughs) but if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about is a very different brand. Right. But, uh, but you know, the only two shows really embrace that cartoonishness. And this one, I think it's, it's limited uh, almost like incidentally the perfect amount, at least from what I've seen so far. I think so too. Yeah. And there's also things like I, I really like that Doc Ock's arms are constantly moving. Yeah, what do you time. think of Doc Ock in this one? We love talking oh, about Doc I mean, Ock. He's whatever. He's fine. I don't care. Like he's he's so he's super basic in this episode, you know. But like I said, I love that his I I, I think they use his arms as well as they can, you know, like with, yeah. with the limitations that they have. I think they do some some fun things with them. I like yeah, like I said, I like how much they're moving. Um I like that he punches with them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a yeah. point where he's like Punch, he's trying to like punch Spider-Man and it's not just that his tentacles are like lunging at Spider-Man but like it, it seems like they they either close their claws or transform to be like blunt objects 
<laughs> I right. like that. <laughs> Which is fun, yeah, because you know you don't see that ever on in any other iteration of Doc Hawk, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, this going into the show, I don't think we're expecting any nuance. Like there's going to be zero nuance in any of these characters and any of these stories, and that's and, that's fine. And that's to what be it is. fair, the comic hadn't really gotten there with most of these characters. I mean, like Doc yeah. Ock is Doc Ock and Goblin at this point in the comics are kind of Spider-Man's like most developed, most nuanced nemeses. And even then Doc Ock has appeared what three times maybe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't have a full deep nuanced background yet. Right. Um, and if, if Doc Ock and, and Goblin barely have that, I mean, yeah, moving forward, any any villain we get should feel like they're sort of in the early stages of appearance. Right. And I think that, like, I bring that up because I, I it, he as a character is is just the, is a super generic mad scientist character. Yeah. Um, but I think that's fine because what I like about it is they make him really formidable. Like, because there's no interesting character dynamics to deal with <laughs> in this, they just get to be like, okay, what if a dude with metal tentacles, like, punched Spider-Man? Like, what would he do? Like... <laughs> And and honestly, that's something that we don't really see that often because oftentimes I think he maybe isn't presented as formidable enough um, physically because you have his intellect in and you know maybe some interesting shades of his character in other iterations. But with this, he can just brutalize Spider Man mm-hmm. and like that's because that's all they have to lean on, and I think that that's really fun. Yeah, it's pretty much all they've got. I mean, he did, he they did the master planner stuff in the comics at this point, but like that wasn't even really that much of an intellectual thing, you know? So yeah, yeah, it is interesting to sort of see how they end up portraying Doc Ock this early. Interesting that he's wearing purple um, (laughs) instead of green. Not that he hadn't worn purple, but just, you know, as far as iconic uh, images of Doc Ock go, I would have imagined green. (laughs) That's fine. I like it. I like the purple on him. It's weird that he just has a super generic jumpsuit on, but it's all right. I love that. He's never been he's never been a fashionable dude. Yeah. At least he doesn't have abs. That's all I ask for. Yeah, honestly. totally. This is very much the like sort of uh Doc Ock is our ugly villain. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's very much that design. <laughs> Even in some frames his hair is really messy too. Like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I like it. I like it. Um yeah, yeah. Betty, notably a vibrant redhead in this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know if you came across anything on that. I'm imagining that that I, I could see it going either way. Um, Mary Jane in the comics, not a huge, huge part of the comics yet, but definitely there. I think she was pretty instantly popular though. Right. I would imagine. Yeah. So, so you want supp- to know the answer to who appears in this show or not? Because you won't find out the answer for a very. I mean, long time. I I know some people who do appear in the show, um, and I know I know of characters who appear in the show that maybe never appeared in the comics uh, that yeah, oh, might well, slot into of some of these <laughs> this, yeah. these spots. Um, I don't know how how far into the series Betty makes it. I I do believe Mary Jane ends up in this series at some point. Um, so, but, but I, I mean, I, that's all incidental information I've come across, not stuff that I've sought out necessarily. Yeah. I think Betty being a redhead is because they just basically made her the, the woman and just fused everybody (laughs) to her (laughs) because there's, there's the other ones are either not going to appear or going to. Does Mary Jane show up in this? I don't care. 
She does in exactly one episode okay. very late in the series. I thought I saw her um, name somewhere. Because, you know, again, yeah. like, if you look at the if you look at the voice credits, like, you just end up seeing, like, 12 names next to every actor. Yeah. I, I have seen uh, – that's one of the episodes of the show that I've seen is the episode she appears in. And I think you'll be very – I think you'll have some thoughts about how very Jane is portrayed in that episode. But that is Maybe. a very long ways away. <laughs> Maybe. You know, like, uh, not that this episode is about the comics, but it's hard not to reference them. She's an interesting character when she's introduced yeah. in the comics too. So I wonder if oh. it'll be one and the same or if it'll be very different. Did you ever read her with like a super thick New York accent? <laughs> Probably didn't. No, but it doesn't not make sense. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it, it is it's interesting. That's a long ways away. But yeah, I mean there's no Gwen Stacy in this show. So I think yeah. that I think that Betty Brant being a redhead was intentional because it's sort of like Peter, there's a redhead in the comics. Yeah. And she's cool. Let's make Betty that. And then they're the same character, right? All women are the same. But you know what's interesting, though? This Betty isn't not Betty. You know, like she has the demeanor of Betty Brandt in That's that she point. is kind of worried. Like she worries. She's a worry wart, right? The mm-hmm. reason she ends up there is because she's like, oh, no, I hope Peter's not in danger. And Betty Brandt, uh, at least in her original sort of characterization, was literally just afraid of, for good reason, they get into it, but like literally afraid of any man she cares about ever doing anything dangerous at all. So like yeah. it makes perfect sense like how she gets to where she is in this episode. And then she's never jubilant. You know, she's always yeah. sort of like, ah, like flustered and <laughs> and a little bit sad and worried. You know, like that that is yeah. Betty Brant, you know, the earliest version of Betty Brant. That's her to a T, which is not at all like Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane. You know, it's kind of, kind of what sets her apart. That's a good point. Yeah. And she does always kind of, at least in the early ones, have kind of like a caustic relationship often with Peter, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it ebbs and flows. And in this one, it's kind of like that where it's like, oh, you clearly care about him. But as soon as he does something that annoys you, you're going to go off on him yeah. and be annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 just how Stanley wrote romance. <laughs> that's a good point. That's I guess that's all women in, in those early comics. Aren't but they, she's not it? immune from that. So, like, it makes sense that that's part of this, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's fun. I, the only other thing that I think um, really stuck out to me from this segment is that I do like how – Spider-Man is 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 written like I think he has really fun quips not necessarily super clever all the time but things that did at least like make me like quietly chuckle Mm -hmm. often in a way that I think will be fun for kids like no one will stop my plans looks like I caught you with your plans down I love that line so cute I love it it's 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 fun it's silly but it's such like it's it is it's like proto it's like prototypical Spider-Man bad humor in a way that works for him like the the quips that like are clever in how unclever they are, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. He's a dork. And also, I do appreciate that as, as much as we were, like, making fun of how often Spider-Man just gets captured and that's the whole plot of the episode, I do like that he does comment on it. Like, Betty's like, how did you how did you get captured? And he's just like, that's what I keep asking myself. But <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like this one. I like it a lot. I mean, like, again, yeah. we have to sort of like measure it based on what it's trying to accomplish. Um, And I think for the most part, it does exactly what it sets out to do is just to make like Mm -hmm. a sort of um, not too serious, not too deep or complicated sort of Spidey gets caught and tries to escape and it takes three tries and third time's the charm, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, at any point in the, at any point in the comic had Spidey defeated Ock by by putting web in his eyes or is this, is, has that happened? And from what you've read, Rick reread recently. I feel like he has done that. I feel because I feel like 
Oh, I'm trying to remember. The The big thing that stands out to me is that the sort of like trying to web up his tentacles and that never working and Spider-Man yeah. never seeming to learn, you know? One thing that I'm surprised they didn't do is that Doc Ock will use his webbed up tentacles as like a club. Um, Ooh, and they didn't yeah. do that. You know what I mean? Because like Spider-Man's like, ha I got you. And he's like, stupid. Like... Yeah. I'm just going to hit you twice as hard now. Um, they didn't do that. But I do think that in an early appearance, I think one of the things that he manages to do is is hit him in the face. So I think that's probably from the comics. It doesn't look the way that they do it in this. <laughs> sure. The only reason I asked is because in the 90s show, it's like really pointed that he he does that to Ock in, in Ock's first episode where he webs up his uh, goggles and Ock has trouble taking it off. And that's like a major way that he defeats him. And I wasn't sure if that was a reference to this show or the comics. Maybe both. I can't say with 100% certainty, but I, that does sound right. Yeah. Just curious. Yeah. Anything else about this first one? Oh, the only other note that I had, this goes for the entire show, but I like that everyone pronounces Jameson Jameson. Yeah. Like eliminate that syllable. <laughs> everyone does that. It's not Jameson. It's Jameson. Son Jameson. of James. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which again, when when you're realizing this is the first time they're saying any of these names out loud in an official capacity, uh, you could see how yeah. that would happen. <laughs> yeah. It's just and then it's later they're just like, let's not do that. <laughs> let's yep. let's let's add that extra syllable. <laughs> and then the, that then then history was made yeah. from then on. <laughs> I will say I don't think I've ever met a Jameson. Have you? Right. No, it's always been Jameson. I don't yeah. know why they think that. Like, I don't know why where that came from. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I do like that they, um, you know, his Peter's outfit is basically ripped straight from the comics. Not really a surprise, but that that ugly yellow sweater that he wears Ugh. everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. They establish that he, you know, he's a photographer in this. They don't, you know, that's that's a big part of both of these segments, and very much looks like that early romita face you know that like yes. baby face round face peter big baby 100%. blues <laughs> it's definitely even though obviously they don't have the ability to copy the detail that romita has right like, it's very clearly inspired by that era of spider-man for sure like, for sure 100 yeah. yeah you get a good look at it at the end of this episode when he's making his joke at the end yeah <laughs> <laughs> well there i mean faces of the episode for these episodes i feel like are going to be plentiful um, oh, yeah. because they're so unique to this show. Right. So I, I, I think you were in this document while I was pasting and replacing and grabbing new screens and replacing them all over again. Cause there's just so many good faces. Uh, one of these great faces of doc Ock, um, it's this very particular brand of cartoonish smile that you would never see in any other Spider-Man cartoon. Um, where he just has the widest, most maniacal grin as he's like <laughs> trying to torture Spider-Man. Also, just like a good sort of grab of probably what is supposed to be a standard Otto Octavius model in this show. But like you said, everything's kind of always off model. Um, but it gives you a good good look at that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny yeah. too. His design is so so funny because it almost just looks like Elton John, but with normal sunglasses it instead does. of with like oh wacky sunglasses. Oh, weird. Oh, no. I'll never be able to unsee that. <laughs> I mean, Elton John kind of just looks like Doc Ock, to be honest. <laughs> huh. Huh. You know? You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, a Spider-Man movie with Elton John as Doc Ock. I think there are ways you could make it happen. <laughs> you could, I think that there's a. it would be a different take, but I think that you could make that into yeah. something interesting. Yeah. <laughs> huh. 
Another fantastic face, the moment that Jameson, and just a good gag, the moment that Jameson gets the phone calls, he gets four phone calls. But what's funny is, like, you think he's only picking up two phones. So by the time he's picking (laughs) up more than two phones, it's, like, fully cartoon joke mode. And he's just, like, trying to juggle four phone receivers in his hands all at once and making a great face while doing it. Fantastic. (laughs) And then finally, uh, one that I couldn't ignore here. When Spider-Man shoots the web in Doc Ock's face... Um, it's specifically like two globs of webbing over each one of the lenses of his glasses. So it just looks like he's wearing like webby goggles. And then he puts his arms up like in frustration. But then it just looks like he's, I don't know, trying to scare a child. Uh, it's like a zombie. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a zombie pose. Um, and yeah. again, that sort of like cartoonishly stretched mouth that you really just would not see in most other iterations. It's great. It's great. The show rules. Uh, so many good faces. And so many good faces left out. The police officer at one point makes the most ridiculous face thinking about Betty Brant and why she's out alone in the mountains. So many good it's faces. It's great. Anytime they it's focus great. on a face, it's probably going to be great. Yeah. It never looks like what it looked like in the last frame. <laughs> exactly. It's always it's like it's so clear that they were often in a rush for this. Yeah. And that it it creates just it's so charming, honestly, yeah. because it's like, oh, man, it, you accidentally created like really compelling art, I think. Yeah. Because there's just every single frame is something interesting and different from what the last one was. That's like worthy of looking at because there's always so much in it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I cool. like it. I do, too. Well, how about this next one? Yeah, let's talk about it. Hello, amazing friends. We'd like to take a moment to thank our spectacular and up patrons, Bo, Eric, Carl, Katie, Mike, and Lillian. If you would like to support our show, too, our way of saying thanks is by giving you lots of cool Spidey goodies. You'll have early access to all our episodes, including our AMAs, where we answer your burning questions about anything and everything. And we mean everything. If you join us at our $5 spectacular level, you get to hear us let loose and talk about wackier stuff in our After Dark commentaries or our movie commentaries where we watch every single Spidey-related theatrical film from the Raimi films to Amazing Spider-Man to Spider-Verse, Venom, Avengers Endgame, and more. And at our amazing tier, we'll invite you to be a guest on our show. That's right, you. You all make our show better, whether it's by sending us Word Snappers words, making us fan art, joining our Discord community, or just listening to us every week. This is our way of saying thank you for supporting this show and inspiring us to dip into media even we didn't realize was on our radar. Whatever tier you opt into, thank you so much. Whether you're an avid listener or just stopping by, we appreciate you. From your friendly neighborhood podcasters, thank you. Uh, This other segment is called Sub-Zero for Spidey. The synopsis per me is an ice monster in a heat wave? (laughs) Beautiful. Beautiful. Bravo. Thank Thank you. Well, this segment has one sort of featured character introduced that I imagine we will never see again uh, because this isn't even a character from the comics. This is just somebody who shows up. Um, This is Dr. Smarter, spelled S-M-A-R-T-Y-R. Wow. Worked (laughs) real hard for that one, didn't you guys? Uh Uh-huh. 
And uh, Dr. Smarter is voiced by Gilly Fenwick. Uh, No surprises here. Fenwick was part of the voice cast for the Marvel superheroes. He voiced Baron Zemo, among others. And he provided the voice of the Sheriff of Not in Rocket Robin Hood. (laughs) The Sheriff of N period, O period, T period, T period. Wow, I need to watch this show so bad. Are you kidding me? I know, The Sheriff of N-O-T-T? Me too. Come on. Wow. (laughs) They're ahead of the game, to be honest. Marvel saw what yeah. they were doing and were like, what about S.H.I.E.L.D. though? <laughs> yeah, what S.H.I.E.L.D.? It gives me like Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century vibes too. <laughs> Very that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fenwick also appeared in numerous roles across 50s and 60s Canadian anthology series, of which there were apparently many. <laughs> okay. Such as huh. Festival, Playdate, Folio, The Unforeseen, and Encounter. All just- what the fuck? Anthology series, primetime anthology drama series. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, I guess it's like kind of trying to, it's weird because I'd, I'd imagine that it's probably trying to uh, uh, copy the success of the Twilight Zone, but like in the US, they didn't try that hard to, like they made like the Outer Limits and I think that that was, a, I don't know how much more they did at the time. It's weird that there were so many of them well, and they don't all sound like sci-fi things no, they're, either. No, they're definitely not. Most of them are not. Um, that's and, that's and even I, weirder. Well, but is it? Because if you think about it, like if the Canadian industry isn't as robust, then is it harder for them to sell an entire long-term series or like with one team or is it easier for them to just have like an anthology series where like maybe you're bringing on people who have one episode or a cast for one episode, you know, like I imagine the contracts for these anthology series are much less uh, wieldy than oh, yeah. for a long term show. So because everybody's a guest star, exactly. Show, so it's it's always going to be cheaper. That yeah yeah I guess so. That's the only reason I could think that there would be so many of them, whereas in the United States there were not. That's you know? interesting. So I don't know. It's funny too because some of them look like you know this episode is a history episode, like a historical drama. This episode is just like a legal drama, and they might all be part of the same series. It's like so fascinating to me. I love that. I want that in our lives. Like just a a series that's made by like the same creators where they just try out just a single hour long story from just every genre imaginable just for fun. Like that sounds really fun. It does sound fun. I just can you imagine them trying to market it, which is exactly the problem. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess. so. Um, But which is not to say it wouldn't be good. That's that's part of the problem is like it probably would be really interesting and good. Um, but all they would think about is like, how do we sell it? <laughs> yeah, it's hard enough to market yeah. like anthology series that are like in one genre now, yeah. I guess. You'd so have to market point. it based solely on the core creative team. Yeah. Like right, it would have right. to be – I know this is a bad example because of the Twilight Zone, but it would literally have to be like Jordan Peele's anthology series and you'd be showing up because it's Jordan Peele's. Yeah. And you know that Jordan Peele specifically said this is not just horror or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, no, that's a good point because I think the only reason that that the Twilight Zone show has done any as well as it has, which I don't even know how well it's done, but has done as well as it has, I think, is because his name was attached to it. Yeah. Because I think any, if anybody else was doing it, I think people would just scoff at it. You know. Yeah. 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 Good point. Well, we will hear Fenwick again in future episodes of the series, providing voices for much more memorable characters in the Spider-Man canon. And I guess we'll mention them when they show up. But uh, Smarter, not one of those memorable characters. <laughs> oh, really? I'm so surprised. He was so compelling and interesting and unique. 
Well, let's get into the adventure of Dr. Smarter and how he intersects with (laughs) Spider-Man. So this episode opens on a hot as hell day. On his way to meet up with Professor Smarter, Peter slips on a sheet of ice. He looks around to see trees inexplicably freezing, and he hears Smarter calling for help from his home. He suits Clearly, up. like, not anywhere near the mic, <laughs> by the way. I know. There are some there are some line deliveries in this episode that uh, you can definitely tell we're just, like, in a, in a relatively open room. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, he suits up and he finds Smarter in his home, which is frozen over. Um, and he sees Smarter cowering under what appears to be a giant ice golem with, like, an ice cube head. Spidey tries to use his webbing on this ice giant, but it freezes his webs mid-air and fires back with a barrage of icicles that are strong enough to stick into the walls of Smarter's home. The ice giant retreats before Spidey can strike back, so he sets off and finds the ice giant elsewhere in the city. To escape Spidey's pursuit, the giant freezes and splits in half an entire skyscraper, which isn't even an important detail, but worth noting because he splits in half an entire skyscraper that presumably people were in. So, taking a break from his pursuit, Peter attempts to deliver photos to Jameson, but Jameson receives a phone call about an iceberg in the harbor and sends Peter back out to get photos of that instead. And, of course, Peter's like, well, that's strange, considering I was just fighting an ice giant. So, after getting pictures from uh, or of the iceberg from on top of the Statue of Liberty, Spider-Man reconvenes with Dr. Smarter to compare notes, who hypothesizes that the ice giant is from the planet Pluto. Of course, why wouldn't that be your first thought? <laughs> <laughs> I love the giant leap that they both take. It's like, yeah, oh, you know, well, obviously he's from Pluto, which they also say is the coldest planet in the universe, which is a, just such a, a wild leap upon wild leaps upon wild leaps. So, I mean, he is Dr. Smarter. Uh-huh. He's clearly smart. I, if anyone can make can figure that out from these scarce details, yeah. I guess he can. Well, we will learn just how smart he is. <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) So not only does Dr. Smarter assume that these these ice giants are from Pluto, he suspects that there must be many more than just one. And right on cue, two ice giants appear in Smarter's home, freeze Spidey and Smarter solid, and carry Smarter off, ultimately bringing him to the iceberg in the harbor, which has a door interesting (laughs) so after thawing out spider-man decides he has to revisit the iceberg after he detours home to buff up his suit and his web shooters which i think is pretty cool uh, spider-man arrives back at the iceberg and once inside is met by a series of booby traps a very long series of booby traps i might add (laughs) one of which is him being like wow these booby traps really took a lot out of me. I guess I'll sit down in this conspicuous <laughs> block of ice that surely isn't a trap after I've after every single thing I've touched has been a trap. No, it's a trap. Like, but what's funny on, is man. he specifically says, "I think I'll sit this one out." Like, were you giving up, Spider Man? Yeah. Were you done? What was the plan? Were you done? <laughs> that was enough for you. <laughs> Well, in any case, none of these booby traps stop him, of course. Uh, But when he finds Smarter at the core of the iceberg surrounded by ice giants, he is shocked to learn that Smarter no longer considers them a threat. I believe he even says, they're friends. Smarter explains that the ice giants are, in fact, Plutonians, and he introduces Spider-Man to their leader, who further explains that the only reason they stopped on Earth was because their ship needed repairs on its way back home. And, of course, they sought out the smartest and most equipped person on planet Earth to help them fix their ship, Dr. Smarter. (laughs) Thank God his name was – like, what if his – I mean – 
what if his name was Dr. Smarter and he was just the dumbest person in the world? Like, Those poor Plutonians. <laughs> right? It's. I mean, yeah, clearly they only found him because they're like the earth, the, the English earth word for for intelligent is smart. And yeah. This man clearly must be the smartest in the world. Yeah. I like the idea <laughs> that they're just sort of like, clearly they would not name him that were he not smart. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Also, that Plutonian leader looks cool as hell. Yeah. I think. Total we only babe. see a glimpse of him. It's a great, great, uh, great design, yes. I think. Yes. Well, after giving Smarter some time to help repair the Plutonian ship, the iceberg transforms into a massive diamond, of course, and flies away. <laughs> and the episode ends with Peter reporting back to J. Jonah Jameson, who worries he'll become a laughingstock. I'm not entirely sure why he's so worried, but that was a big thing, um, like, Every so, I don't know, four issues where J. Jonas Jameson was like horrified or mortified to learn that he reported something wrong. So I guess it's just a reference. Um, well, be a better journalist, Jameson, yeah. instead of editorializing every goddamn thing. Yeah. <laughs> but also, especially when it comes uh, to Spider Man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He's worried about it. Um, and then, like the last segment, uh, it ends in a joke because Betty jokes that Peter should have brought the diamond back for her. Because after all, diamonds are a girl's best friend. <laughs> uh, as she said, she says as she sensually puts on lipstick. Like <laughs> of course, <laughs> absolutely a flirt. I didn't miss something with Jameson, right? Like Jameson literally uh, no, just reported that there was an iceberg in the harbor, which was true. Like, what is? Yeah. Like, is he is he worried that people are going to laugh at him because he reported that it, it turned into a diamond and flew off? I like, guess so. Peter has photographic clearly- evidence. And clearly everyone around that area would have seen that happen. Like, it's not like it's not like they're breaking some great news story that no one is yeah. like, that, that no one has, has witnessed. Like, they're just covering something that probably everyone already knows about at this point. They're just yeah. adding a little bit of extra context. To it really it. feels like they missed the spirit of the Jameson is worried about being a laughing stock through line. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. normally it would weird. be like normally it would be like um, – you know, I have I have proof that Spider-Man is teamed up with Scorpion or whatever. And then that, that's a terrible example given Jameson's relationship to Scorpion. But whatever. Um, normally it would be something like that that he would then publicly be proven wrong about. You know what I mean? This right. I, I do right. not understand. Don't get it. No, nope. <laughs> don't get it. Don't get it. <laughs> Here's the thing. Yeah. I'm a I'm such a sucker for these stories where it's like, oh, no, it's alien invaders. Oh, actually, the aliens are friendly and nice and just misunderstood, and now we're going to help them, and then they go, and everybody's friends. I fucking love those <laughs> every single time, no matter how badly done they are. Oftentimes, like, cause that it's a bizarrely common trope for, like, 70s yeah. cartoons, I've noticed. Like, it comes up so often, and it's always really badly done because the the aliens always do, like, horrific shit and, like, terrify people, split fucking skyscrapers in half <laughs> kill hundreds if not thousands of people probably like yeah. it's always so badly done but then by the end i'm like oh they're friends it's so great i'm so glad that this has ended <laughs> with them being friends there is hope for the world yeah. peace in the universe i love it it's great and so i'm happy by the end of it anyway <laughs> yeah no i'm a sucker for it too partially because i just i i just like them but also because it's it's such a better I don't know. It's just a better or it's a refreshing thing to see, at least now when like I feel like we're in we're like almost just like embracing the like alien invaders are terrible. Let's war with them 
Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's just the MCU talking, but like, I, I don't think know. It's like, the MCU I, I like seeing the, the sort of things. like, oh no, it was just misunderstood. <laughs> yeah. Like my, my, I swear, like one of my favorite movies I think is, is the original day the earth stood still. Cause it's just all about that. It's just like, oh no, it's an alien invader. No, he's a good guy. Like, calm down, y'all. It's fine. He's great. He he literally just wants to help. There's no weird yeah. twist or ulterior motive. If you're going to be a dick, that's your fault. Like, he's a good guy. Yeah. Like, I love that stuff. It's all optimist. It's all very optimistic. It's probably unrealistic or whatever. But I think it's just really it's a it's a very comforting sort of story to be told. You know, I- it's just like if if we were in that situation, even though I know that Americans especially are going to going to be really shitty with how they handle it. It's just really nice to think that like, oh, no, they'd be friends and we'd be friends and everything would be fine. And that's, okay, that's well, sweet and nice. See, I was I was going to say like, but isn't it more realistic? Because I feel like it's less realistic that they would just like come to Earth and be actually invaders and it would be more of a misunderstanding. But when you present it as like how we as Earthlings or more specifically Americans react. Yeah. OK, I, I, I definitely see what yeah. you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, I think like like Arrival does it well yeah. because it does it both ways where it's just like, oh, yeah, here's like the worst case scenario for how Earthlings would act. But we still get some night like they, it's it's all still OK in the end. Yeah. Like it still ends up being fine. We see a little bit of both of that. And yeah. that which that movie fucking rules. Yep. If you've never seen it, please see it. It's great. Yeah. Arrival rips. You should see Arrival if you haven't. Yeah, it's fantastic. But it kind of presents both sides. It, it gives you both sides of it. In this case. It's just it. This episode is just about like it's just a misunderstanding. <laughs> the misunderstanding just happened to include a just an unfathomable amount of violence, you know. <laughs> and the resolution takes entire like takes place entirely off screen. <laughs> yeah, like we do not even know how they got to the point where Smarter was like, "Oh, I understand." Like, I guess they just like captured him and froze him and while he was frozen they just talked to him like i don't know it's so funny so. to me maybe i guess the pl- the plutonian leader is maybe the only one who can speak english <laughs> yeah like or he's telepathic or something like that i mm, think is yeah, what yeah, it yeah. felt like maybe so that makes way yeah, more sense yeah if he's telepathic and he's the only one who can communicate that he has to be, they have to be brought to his ship and maybe he's not able to leave because he doesn't have the, the ability to leave the ship or something like that and survive. Yeah. Here. I don't know. I, there's, there's a million ways you can <laughs> rationalize it. You know, I think you can't really rationalize the splitting the skyscraper in half. You can't nope. really rationalize just shooting Spider-Man with a bunch of fucking ice spikes. Like there's not, yeah, it doesn't really work, but eh, whatever. You can almost, fine. I think you can almost rationalize that. I mean, Spider-Man did come in like pretty intense. That's a good point. He, he yeah. came in. I feel like and, that's yeah. a misunderstanding. I can I can understand. Uh, yeah. With both of those parties being a little bit aggressive, it's kind of like a Frankenstein's monster type thing. Didn't sure. set out to be violent, but he's reacting. Yeah. It is hilarious that like the resolution is just like the doctor that just happens to have been building a warp drive, a warp <laughs> drive, a working warp drive. Of course. All right. <laughs> This, this okay. This universe is just has mastered space travel now in 1967. Yeah. They hadn't even made. They hadn't even gone to the moon yet. This was before. This was before we, in actual history, went to the moon. <laughs> it's wild. In in that in that regard, I'm just surprised that the phrase warp drive even means anything. Yeah. Like well, now, I, I want to got... know when that first appeared. When did that first appear? Like, did like that first Star Trek already Star happened, Trek? right? Yeah, Star Trek already happened, but I don't know if they originated it or not. It would be cool if they did because it's such a Star Trek thing, but I don't know yeah. if that if that had been, if that phrase had come from, a, huh. from any other sci-fi thing before Star Trek. Yeah, now I want to know. 
Yeah. Well, this one, I don't know. This one's kind of funny because, like, I feel like uh, genuinely when I said that booby trap sequence was long, it's really fucking long. Like, yeah. it's yeah. minutes long. Um, so there isn't like there's almost like I don't not that much happens in this episode but i do like it i find it charming um and even though those booby trap sequences are really long just purely from like watching old animation uh from that perspective i kind of still enjoyed it to a degree like um Mm -hmm. just watching him crawl around this episode does like a couple cool things where it does like very very wide shots um which is a strange choice for a show that can't really do a detailed wide shot you know so you end yeah. up with like this teeny tiny ant sized silhouette of spider-man which could be literally anybody um yeah. you only know it's him because he's the only one around so it's like it's kind of cool or or the the shot where he's it's way too slow but it's you know their capabilities were what they were but when he's like crawling around the iceberg and then it will like he'll stop and then it'll like turn <laughs> All those sequences are really charming. They're not very yeah. good, but they're charming. <laughs> yeah. That's the show in a nutshell, honestly. It's like, it's not very good, but it's extremely charming. Yeah. It's so fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we've gotten two episodes now with like a pretty, pretty like, not featured, but like Jameson is 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 here. Like Jameson, I think, is the secondary character, right? Because Betty's not oh, that yeah. much in this one. Yeah, yeah. Is she no, even absolutely. in this one at all? She's in it at the oh, end yeah, for the diamonds right. yeah, yeah, or yeah. girl's next friend, but best friend. That's that's the only bit that she's appeared in. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll see a lot. I think we're gonna see a lot of Jameson in this show. Yup. Um, you know, which is hey, it's fine by I'm me. Here for it. Yeah. Yeah, fine by me too. Oh, this episode, this this segment also a first uttering of walloping web snappers. Yeah, namesake. namesake. They said the thing. Yeah. Said the thing. <laughs> is that ever was that said in the comics at all before then, or did that really originate from this show? Oh, I have, I've, I don't know. In fifty some issues, think... I've read probably a million words because Stan Lee. Oh uh, yeah. I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that he said it, but yeah, I um, think it originated in this show. So we really got yeah. the first iteration of our namesake in our one hundredth episode, which is really fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Love that. Nice. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I get why this was the second segment because I get why the other one was the first segment, but I think I probably like the first one more. <laughs> eh, they're fine. They're think? both they're they're different. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. I like the first one more because it had more uh, more character stuff. This one, whatever. Like, but I, I like I like the aliens. They're great. I like that they're different kinds of stories. Yeah, yeah. Like they're 100%. not the same story. That's for sure. That's a good point. I think we're going to get a lot of that in this show <laughs> where yeah. it's just like, where did that come from? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell me about these faces that you picked. Cause I don't have anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first one, I just, I just like it. It's like, like you said, nothing's ever on model. And I will say like, if a show is trying to be on model, then it is annoying to see things off model. But in this show, it isn't a priority. And so it's like you said, with the last segment, it ends up being like charming um, and it ends up being the standard that nothing's ever on model. That is really front and center with this first phase of the episode, which is like from a scene where Spider-Man is like swinging through the city toward the camera. And it's just like, I love it because it is the flattest, the flattest drawing of Spider-Man's mask I've ever seen in a cartoon. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I really, I genuinely enjoy looking at it. It is genuinely pleasing to my eyeballs. Yeah, I agree. And it's also like, there's a crudeness to this show that I think is like really charming. Like the way, like 
it's it, it it's a show where like it's weird to say this, but it almost feels like so much of it is like the first draft of the art. And that sounds like an insult, and I guess in a lot of contexts it is. But for this one, it's, like, why I kind of love it, because you'll look at frames like this one that you pulled out, where, like, a lot of the webbing is just sort of, like, out of sync and just very clearly just sort of, like, almost hastily drawn. You've got the piece of the webbing on the right-hand side that is overlapping with his suit. (laughs) That's, like, overlapping with the blue part. Like, and it's, like, you know, I love it. It's fine. It feels like somebody hand-drew that in, you know, really quickly because they had a deadline. And I kind of embrace the chaos with that well, stuff. And here's the thing. Like, it might, for whatever reason, it ends up looking the way that it does. And it ends up looking sort of crude or first drafty or whatever. And whether that's an insult or not, like, I don't really care. Because if you think about it, this sort of crudeness ends up being revived as an actual artistic style in, like, the 2000s. With, like, a lot of, if you think of, like, yeah. Adult Swim shows or absurdist style animation, like they end up fully embracing this sort of like almost retro crudeness. Yeah. And and I think one of the things that I like about this, it must, it's clearly not just pleasing to us. Right. Because you see shows that have this really flat sort of look to them that just do not prioritize or care about sort of like depth or perspective or anything like that. Like it is very stylistic. um, And I, I find it really pleasing. So like, yeah. Regardless of what the product or, or how the product came to be, the product is revered, you know? Um, yeah. And, and, and I, uh, you know, I just, I don't know. There's something about it that just feels both really old, but also somehow maybe not contemporary, but like, like something I would have watched in college that was brand new at the time. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's something really appealing to watching something where like the flaws and imperfections are so on display. Um, where it's like, oh, oh, this isn't like I'm paying a lot of attention and noticed a mistake. It feels like it's just it's a flaw in the way that like, oh, God, I'm going to sound so pretentious with saying this. It's like a flaw in the way that like people are flawed, where it's like, <laughs> oh, your flaws kind of make you who you are, you know, where it's like if you were just a perfect like archetype of a human being i don't think it would be that interesting and this show is so interesting because it is so full of these of these precious little moments where like things just look weird and look off in a way that it's that it's just like yeah i feel kind of comfortable with that like (laughs) i recognize that this is a cartoon that someone drew and there's just something really cool about that that feels really good when you're watching it like it doesn't feel overly refined yeah it doesn't feel it doesn't feel overly worked on or overly you know supervised or something like that it is just it it feels like like it feels like something that like fledgling artists just threw together in a way like that in a way that it's just like that you would do your passion project you know yeah i think not overworked is maybe one of the best ways to describe it without like running into the territory of maybe being insulting. I like, I like that you said that, like, I think that, cause that's, that's an actual thing in art. Like you don't want to overwork something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and part of, part of what the measurement is, is the resources you have. So if we know that this show had very limited resources, so what becomes overworked, the bar moves. Right. And so I think that's probably the best way you can put it is it's not overworked. It's probably not overthought. And I think those shows that I was talking about embraced that and probably took that yeah. same principle and said, like, we're yeah. not going to overwork it. We're not going to overthink it. We're going yeah. to put it on, 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 on the frame, and that's it, you know? Um, and yeah. it ends up looking really, I think, genuinely cool and, and like something I want to draw, you know, and something I feel yeah. like I could draw. <laughs> 
that's a good point. Yeah, it's something that, that I think is a lot easier that you could replicate as a person, even if you're not like like you know an experienced artist. I think you could draw all these characters and these scenes and stuff, and yeah. it's just like, oh yeah, that's the show that I just watched. You yeah. know, um, yeah, <laughs> it feels like what film grain is on film. Like, yeah, you can yeah. have something that has zero film grain because we've we've bypassed, we've like surpassed the 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 need to have that in technology because technology do- doesn't have to have it. But having film grain on some stuff makes it look cool sometimes, yep. you know, like yeah. it just adds like depth and personality to it, even though technically it's founded on like what you could argue is a flaw in earlier technology. But it's just like an appealing sort of visual to have. Yeah. Th- things that are objectively bad aren't necessarily not pleasing. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think art has proven that time and time again. And this this falls yeah. in that category for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. The second face of the episode, far less uh, art commentary here. It's just a funny frame. (laughs) It's Spider-Man and Dr. Smarter uh, in the room right before the two ice giants or Plutonians uh, crash back into Smarter's house. And uh, it's it's a shot that is if the camera were behind Spider-Man looking at Smarter and when the when the ice giants crash through the door. Spider-Man turns around, but he doesn't totally turn around. He just turns his head and both of them are like, huh? So they're both like (laughs) looking back at you uh, on the camera uh, or looking back at the camera. Also features one of the the sort of quote major flaws uh, featured in the first season, which is the six legged spider on Spider-Man's suit. Jesus Christ. I didn't even (laughs) notice. (laughs) I didn't either. I only, I took the screen grab, not realizing or noticing that read about it later and then realized I had a screen grab of it. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Didn't even occur to me, man. Didn't even notice. Same. (laughs) They do fix Um, it later, though. (laughs) Gotcha. Good to know. Yep. Yep. Yeah. (sighs) Well, what a fun show. I'm so glad that we're – I'm so glad that we're doing this one, especially now that I've seen this this first episode. I know that when we get into the future of this series, um, it might – May it might be as fun for different reasons. It might be more fun for different reasons. It might be less fun for those same reasons. I don't know, but I'm glad that we're here at the beginning of it because as we're stepping into it, it seems like a really fun playground. Um, and I'm glad that we get to bring friends with us along the way. Yeah, yeah I'm so excited. <laughs> well, if you would like a playground full of friends doing cool stuff and talking about fun stuff, uh, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash wallopingwebsnappers. Uh, we put all kinds of supplemental content over there, lots of exclusive content over there. But there are some unlocked things if you wanted to check it out and try it out and see what kind of content we're making over there. Uh, we have a few different tiers. See what is for you. Um, that is a great way to support this show and the folks who make it, uh, who are Derek and me. Uh, so that's patreon.com slash wallopingwebsnappers. You can find Derek and me all over the place on the internet doing all sorts of things. Um, Derek, where can people find you and the things you're working on? Heck yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Derek B. Gale. You can find me on YouTube under my video essay series, Second Chance, which looks at bad or divisive media, but from a positive lens. What about you, Doug? You can find me on Twitter at Ikibuli, I-C-K-Y-B-O-O-L-E-Y. You can also find me on Victory Road, a Pokemon podcast here on the 4 Radio Network. It's a Pokemon podcast where I get together with my friends and talk about Pokemon just as I feel like it. If you like books and video games, you can also hear me on a podcast called Novel Gaming where my friends Vicky, Katie, and I talk about all of the media we've been consuming lately. If you would like another show from Derek and me, you can check out our monthly podcast called Falling with Style. 
an ongoing Pixar movie marathon where we watch every Pixar film chronologically. Our episode on Up is out now with a couple of fantastic guests, and you can listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on our website at wallopingwebsnappers.com for a full archive of all of the podcasts Derek and I are working on together um, in easily sortable ways. You can follow Walloping Web Snappers on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Walloping Web Pod. You can email us at wallopingwebsnapperspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can join our Discord, um, and there will be a link to that in the show notes and probably on our social media um, at some point. If you aren't finding it, just message us. We'll give you the link to the Discord. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we are doing here at Walloping Web Snappers, somebody else will too, and those ratings and reviews make us much easier to find. Next week, Spidey faces off against two classic rogues in Where Crawls the Lizard and Electro the Human Lightning Bolt. I wonder who's <laughs> going to be in those episodes. I have no idea. I would guess probably Carnage, right? <laughs> Carnage and the Hypno Hustler, for sure. Definitely. Mr. Negative, I think, as well. Mm, yeah. All yeah. very classic villains. <laughs> All classic villains, yeah, from 1967. <laughs> See you then. See ya. Happy 100! Happy 100! Made it. If you don't tune in on my next week's show, you'll only miss the most exciting adventure of all time, that's all. Spider-Man!